Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us. And it was really good being on the Terry and Jesse show today. Uh, Terry and I talked about uh, the sacrament of matrimony. So if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to that, I encourage you to go and uh, lend an ear. Today we're going to be talking about a lot of things, including the ongoing liturgy wars and what I perceive as a real problem being exhibited on both sides of the aisle, if you will, over the debate uh, regarding the traditional Latin Mass. And also, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the uh, a viral tweet from the USCCB about the Synod on Synodality and the way that the faithful responded to that and the way that the bishops responded to that response. It's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of entertaining. You just can't make this stuff up, I'll put it that way. But uh, this last Sunday was the second Sunday after Epiphany in the extraordinary form. And so the gospel is the uh, wedding at Cana from John chapter 2. Also, it was the gospel. This is one of those times when the, uh, when the gospels coincide. It was the gospel for the ordinary form as well. So I get the uh, pleasure of addressing uh, all of the uh, Roman rite here with these remarks about the wedding at Cana. And so we're reading today, taking our text from the New Catholic Bible, which is a uh, uh, 2019 is when they finished the entire Bible. The New Testament's been available for a number of year, uh, years, and the Psalms even longer than that. They started with the Psalms, then they did the Holy Testament, and now the entire Bible, put out by a um, Catholic book publishing company. And if you're looking for a modern translation of the scriptures that's kind of along the lines of the New American Bible, but without the inclusive language and some of the other uh, objectionable things about it, uh, the the um, historical critical notes, for example. There's lots of notes in this Bible, but they're of the uh, more traditional and devotional kind. And so I, uh, I have been recommending it. It's not perfect. No translation of the Bible is. But uh, if you're looking for a good, understandable, modern translation of the Bible, it's been approved by the bishops for your use. I recommend it to you. Okay. And I'm not, I, I, nobody's uh, paying me to say that, by the way. I'm just trying to get people to read the Bible. All right. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited. When the wine was exhausted, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus responded, woman, what concern is this to us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, standing nearby, there were six stone water jars of the type used for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus instructed the servants, fill the jars with water. When they had filled them to the brim, he ordered them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward, and they did so. When the chief steward had tasted the water that had become wine, he did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew. The chief steward called over the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the choice wine first and then an inferior vintage when the guests have been drinking for a while. However, you have saved the best until now. Jesus performed this, the first of his signs at Cana in Galilee, thereby revealing his glory and his disciples believed in him. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. First thing that jumps out at me is this is where we get the expression, save the best for last, because our Lord Jesus um, changed the water into wine, and it was the very best of wine. And the steward commented on this uh, wine being served 
well into the feast being of a better vintage than that they had started with. Uh, okay, so one thing we have to preface, this is the first of Jesus' public miracles. And so um, we probably should look for a minute at the object of the miracles. Why did our Lord do miracles in the first place? Uh, and you can see by this story that the reason why our Lord worked miracles was, while well, his first uh, object was to encourage men to believe in the divinity of his mission and in the truth of his doctrine. Right? Think about uh, what Nicodemus says in John 3. He said, no one would be able to perform the signs that you do unless God were with him. And the implication there, if God was with Jesus, then everything he taught must be true because God is only with that which is true. Now, the second object of our Lord's miracles was to instruct us not by words, but by deeds also, okay? And the miracle at Cana teaches us something, that we should help our neighbors according to our means. I mean, just basically. And it's also typical, right? It, it's a foreshadowing of his great miracle of love and power and wisdom, which is namely changing the bread and wine into his body, blood, soul, and divinity at the Holy Mass. Uh, and then thirdly, our Lord worked miracles in order to help uh, us with our sufferings and and in our necessities, right? At the miracle of the marriage feast, uh, Jesus wanted to deliver those newlyweds for an awkward dilemma, right? They ran out of wine. He wants to rejoy, uh, uh, restore the, the, the festive joy to the occasion. But his help was so lavish that there was a quantity of wine left over after the feast, right? He makes them 180 gallons of wine. So, and it's just like later on at the feeding of the 5,000, which is the other great foreshadowing of the Eucharist, you have 12 baskets full of bread left over. And so hopefully we, we see in all this the goodness of Jesus, and that should encourage us to appeal to him, to 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 go to his sacred heart for help in all of our necessities, both spiritual and temporal as well. And especially, this miracle teaches us, through the intercession of his blessed mother, Mary. Right, This first miracle, which the scripture says confirmed the faith of the disciples, Right, they believed in him because of this miracle, was done at Mary's intercession. It was through her persuasion that he you know, manifested his glory by this miracle at Cana instead of, you know, waiting until he got to Jerusalem. And and think about it just for a minute. Contemplate Mary's compassion on the situation of this poor bride and groom, you know, and her living faith in the power of Jesus and her confidence in his goodness. You know, Mary's always willing to help us through her intercession, but then we must obey her exhortation, which is do whatever he tells you. Okay. Uh, also, I was talking with Terry on Terry and Jesse show today about the sacrament of matrimony. And by his presence at the marriage feast at Cana, Jesus both honored and sanctified marriage. You know, God instituted marriage in paradise, but Jesus raised it to the level of a sacrament and reminded us that it, it was always from the beginning an indissoluble contract that was sanctioned by God. But now it was to become even more sacred, even more indissoluble. Christ makes it a sacrament, makes it a symbol of his own union with the church. And so he comes here with the first fruits of his church to celebrate, so to speak, a, a double marriage feast, right? That of the bridegroom and the bride, but, but also of himself in the church. And I also think that, you know, the, the fact that our Lord 
you know, it, it's a good corrective to Puritanism that uh, our Lord Jesus takes part in this marriage feast. You know, it shows this, that, that it, it's lawful and pleasing to God that we should take part in, in recreations and pleasures that are wholesome and, and innocent, and that we should, as the Scripture says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, you'll also notice St. Joseph is not mentioned in this story or in any part of our Lord's public life, even his passion. And, you know, the tradition tells us that the reason is that he has already died, and he died the most blessed of deaths in the arms of Jesus and in the presence of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And that's why the Church invokes the, uh, the foster father of Jesus as the patron of a happy death. You know, we ask for his intercession that we, like him, can leave this world united to Jesus and Mary, right? By sanctifying grace, especially united uh, to Jesus through Holy Communion, which is why, you know, you, you want to die what they would call in the old days a provided death, that you would be able to receive the, uh, the uh, uh, anointing of the sick, the extreme unction, and, and receive the Eucharist as, as viaticum, as food for that final journey. Okay, when, when Jesus, or rather when Mary says to Jesus, they have no wine, he responds in a rather curious manner, and there's a, uh, some debate about this. He says, woman, what concern is this to us? My hour has not yet come. Uh, that's, that's literally, what is this between me and thee? Okay. Now there's three things that are worth noting here. First off, he calls her woman, right? And that is not a matter of disrespect as some of our separate brethren, separated brethren would have it. On the contrary, Jesus is acknowledging her as the woman. He uses the same word in the Greek as the Septuagint version of Genesis 3.15, right? The woman where God tells the serpent, you know, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, Okay. Mary is that woman. She's the new Eve, right? Just as uh, Jesus is the new Adam, right? And as Eve was the mother of all the living, uh, Mary is now the mother of all who share the new life of grace. And so Jesus will acknowledge this again uh, at the end of his ministry from the cross when he says, woman, behold your son, and tells St. John, who represented us all at the foot of the cross, behold your mother, so the use of the title woman is used at both of these events because the wedding at Cana and the cross of Calvary are connected, right? His hour, he says, is not yet come. And when he talks about his hour, he's referring to his passion, to the hour of our redemption, all right? And, and when he asked Mary, what concern is this to us? Literally, what is this between me and thee? This is a Hebrew expression that's rendered in English and it can be taken in two different ways. You know, and it's a common feature of John's gospel that uh, Jesus says things in a manner that can be misconstrued, that can be taken in more than one way. And even in modern English, we can see this. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get back. But it's an important uh, feature that Jesus says things that are simple and easy to understand, but only for those who have open hearts. All right, lots more uh, no-nonsense Catholic when we return right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. So stay with us, and we will be back right after these messages.
talking about um, uh, the wedding at Cana and the when Jesus says to Mary, what is this between me and thee? Now, I mentioned before the break, this is a Hebrew expression that's, that's rendered in English, and it can be taken in more uh, than one way, right? Like I said, it's a feature of John's gospel that our Lord says things uh, that can be understood in more than one way. And even in modern English, uh, you can see the difference, and, and that's why it's translated differently. I mean, one version of the scripture says, you know, translates it as, woman, what would you have me do? And another translated translates it as, woman, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> you can see the difference, right? And that's because what is this between us can be you know, uh, can be understood as what can I do for you or what do you want me to do about it? Right now, obviously his intended meeting is made clear when he performs the miracle at her request. Now that doesn't keep some of our anti-Catholic brethren from applying the contrary, but you know, when you think about it, even though Jesus is divine, uh, he's God, he's clearly uh, Mary's superior because she's a, a creature, but Mary's still her mother. And she does have a certain authority in the order of nature. And Jesus respects that, right? Honor thy father and thy mother. Obviously, he keeps the commandments perfectly as an example for us. And the fourth commandment's no exception. But you'll also note that Mary, so perfectly in tune with his sacred heart, makes no assumptions. She simply says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, because she knows that whatever Jesus decides, it'll be the best thing, obviously. And her role is to intercede on our behalf, but the decision belongs to the king, all right? She's the queen mother. She can, she can ask, but the king decides. Finally, you know, he says to her, my hour is not yet come. And his hour in John's gospel refers to the passion, which begins when he offers himself sacramentally at the Last Supper and then culminates in the bloody sacrifice on Calvary. Pardon me. And it's fulfilled in the Holy Mass then, which is also known as the wedding supper of the Lamb. Okay? So you see the connection. At the wedding at Cana, he changed the water into wine, and that water was in six stone water jars of the type used for Jewish rites of purification. In Greek, they were called the baptismoi. Right? So obviously there's a connection there. The water and the miraculous wine prefigure the sacraments of baptism and the Holy Eucharist. And then at the Last Supper, uh, Jesus washes the feet of the apostles, and then he changes wine into his precious blood. Now, at, at first, Peter is scandalized, and he refuses to let Jesus perform such a menial task for him. But our Lord tells Peter he must let him wash his feet, or he says, you will have no share with me. So Peter says to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. But Jesus says something now. He says, anyone who has bathed needs no need to wash further, except for his feet, for he's clean all over. You also are clean, although not every one of you is clean. He's talking about Judas. Now, this can be understood as referring to confession, right? Sins committed after baptism are forgiven by the sacrament of penance, right? We've already been bathed, though, and, and baptized in the Greek. So we don't get baptized again because we've committed sins after baptism, but we go to the to confession. Similarly, our Lord's sacrifice is made present sacramentally at the Last Supper before he goes to the cross. 
And at the consecration of his precious blood, he says, this is the chalice of my blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Right? See, in both cases, the water and the wine are connected with the forgiveness of sins. And when his passion culminates with his bloody sacrifice on the cross, and he lays down his life for our sins, he drinks the sour wine, which, you know, we don't have time to go into it, but that that represents the final cup of the Passover. And then he says, it is finished, right? This, This liturgy, this transformative liturgy that he has begun at the Last Supper uh, culminates in his bloody sacrifice on the cross. And so after he gives up his spirit, Longinus pierces his side with the holy lance, and out comes blood and water. Just as blood and water flowed from the side of the temple at Jerusalem on Passover because of the sacrifices of the lambs, blood and water flow from the side of Jesus' body which is the true temple not made by hands, the temple which he will rebuild in three days as he promised. This is his hour. And once again, Mary is there. Once again, he calls her woman. Now you can see why this is one of my favorite gospels. It's just just so much, it's so rich. And uh, happily this year, this magnificent gospel was proclaimed all throughout the Roman church in both the extraordinary form and the ordinary form of the Latin rite. But not last year, or next year, or the next. Because the wedding at Cana, which is always the gospel of the second Sunday after Epiphany in the extraordinary form, is only read once every three years in the Novus Ordo Missae, on the second Sunday of Ordinary Time, in cycle C. Now, this is one of the many things that, in my humble opinion, can and should be reformed in the Novus Ordo Missae. And we're going to look at that for uh, in a bit you know, this, the, the ongoing liturgy wars in the Roman Catholic Church, and, and a growing problem in this debate that's being exhibited on both sides, okay? So and I want to talk about that. But on a related note, <coughs> I wanted to uh, spend a minute talking about last week's uh, uh, synod of synodality tweet from the USCCB. Now, uh, this actually included a a graphic, an infographic, right, of... of uh, uh, a list of the seven attitudes of the synodal path, viz. innovative outlook, inclusivity, open-mindedness, listening, accompaniment, co-responsibility, and dialogue. And the tweet included this message, here are the seven attitudes we can all adopt as we continue our synodal journey together. Although I dare say that most Catholics are uh, not aware of being on this synodal journey, but there it is. Uh, and they ask, which one inspires you the most? Let us know in the comments below. And boy, did they let them know. Uh, on January 11th, uh, the, there was an article by Matt Archbold on the National Catholic Register website that quoted a number of the responses to the bishop's tweet. One says, with all due respect, being myself neither a kindergartner nor in human resources, None of these free-floating buzzwords, absent context, do I find particularly inspiring. Perhaps words like holiness, fidelity, perseverance, etc., might be worth bringing for the path ahead. In a similar vein, another person commented on the graphic by saying, Sesame Street wants its aesthetic back, Your Excellencies. Uh, And this one, instead of vacuous buzzwords, why not use the original seven attitudes from the gospel? namely the gifts of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. Uh, 
Now, there were a lot of tweets listing the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, as you might imagine. Uh, one of them uh, adding, quote, they complete and perfect the virtues of those who receive them. They make the faithful docile and in readily obeying divine inspirations. So obviously, the simple lay folk, so, pl- so fond of plain speech, as Paul VI liked to say, uh, clearly they're more inspired by the faith than they are by these insipid slogans. Uh, let's see, I was amused by this one. It says, if you are being held captive in the human resources department, blink twice, we will send in a rescue team. <laughs> the, uh, the Catholic actress, Patricia Heaton, you re- remember her from the, uh, that sitcom with, uh, uh, oh shoot, I can't remember his name, but you know who I'm talking about. Uh, she was, he, uh, it was a show that he did. It was called tool time. Uh, anyway, uh, Patricia Heat is her name. And she said, how about you adopt this attitude? She said, Christ shed his blood on the cross to save you. So attend the synod with an attitude of repentance, humility, gratitude, joy, and worship. Let your lips be full of praise for your savior, Jesus, or innovative outlook, I guess. Right. <laughs> and the thing is, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, And and all of these responses just illustrate what Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson reminded the clergy of his day, you know, a hundred years ago. He said it was the man in the street who understood our Lord and the doctor of the law who was perplexed and offended. See, you know, I was talking about the gospel of John. It's like uh, when Nicodemus goes to Jesus and he he says, what must I do to be saved? And and Jesus says, "You're you're a leader in Israel and you don't know this. And it's kind of the same question he asked. It's like, uh, you know, the job of the bishop is to teach and to rule and to, and to govern. And it's like, and why you, and you want my opinion, you know? And he said, and so Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have to be born from above if you want to enter the kingdom. And he says, how can I be born again? Can I climb into my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, you know, amen, amen. I say to you, you have to be born from above of water and the Holy spirit. Now it loses something in the translation because in the Greek, the words for from above and again are the same word, anothen. But the thing is that, that Nicodemus is, is listening to him, but he's not, but he's not hearing him, right? He's, our Lord's talking, he's not talking about climbing into your mother's womb and being born again. He's talking about being uh, born from above by grace in the sacrament of baptism. Okay. All right. Anyway, what happened to the USCCB uh, on Twitter is what they call being ratioed. Okay. That is the term for when negative replies to a tweet vastly outnumber the likes or the, or the retweets, right? So where the negative response goes viral and overwhelms the, the message of the original tweet. And so what you know, did the bishops conference get the message? I guess that's the, that's the question. Uh, the pillar.com requested a response from the bishops conference and they got one. They received this from, uh, uh, Mr. Richard Cole, C O L L who is the USCCB's liaison for the synod of bishops on the topic of the synod on synodality or what they refer to as for a synodal church communion, participation, and mission. He told the pillar quote, Many dioceses are engaging in specific plans for communication, dialogue, and virtual or in-person meetings to discuss the topics and questions as formulated in the synodal materials. More than anything, the synod is an opportunity to engage in a process that fosters the active participation of all 
and that necessitates an openness to be responsive to the needs and realities of each diocese. This is how we become a listening church that journeys together. As the Synod materials anticipate, this will result in fruitful conversations that at times may be frank and challenging. The USCCB will continue to support these endeavors through the preparation of supplementary resource materials, procedural guidance, and information sessions designed to encourage and share best practices in the hopes of fostering the active engagement of as many as possible. Unquote. So did you get that? The Synod on Synodality is an opportunity to engage in a process, to foster active participation. It requires openness and responsiveness, and that's how we become a listening church that journeys together. In other words, in response to the overwhelming negative criticism of their use of meaningless jargon in a tweet, the USCCB answered with a 200-word boilerplate memo composed entirely of meaningless jargon. Okay, We're going to talk about what that means to us when we come back. Lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. So we're talking about the uh, tweet from the USCCB about the synod and synodality, which was filled with this uh, this kind of jargon and buzzwords and the overwhelmingly negative reaction to it, and how the USCCB answered that response with uh, a message that was composed pretty much entirely of more meaningless jargon. And un- unfortunately, that is precisely the kind of listening that faithful Catholics have come to expect in the post-conciliar era. Easy to get jaded, because the inescapable conclusion is they don't really care what you think. You know, I like what Amy Wellborn said about this synod. She said, I'd much prefer if trying to figure out how to make the gospel or how to make the church a more powerful witness to the gospel in the world today, to begin there, the gospel, and then the richness of 2,000 years of experience and wisdom. And she makes an excellent point. There's no mandate for Catholic clergy and laity to journey together to become a listening church. In fact, what that sounds like is the bishops trying to abandon their actual mission, the mission for which they do have a mandate, the mission for which through their ordination, they've been given special graces to accomplish, namely to teach, govern, and sanctify the faithful. That is their office. Okay, that is to say, their solemn responsibility, not not to mention their sworn duty. And for this reason, the bishops were traditionally referred to as the teaching church and the laity as the learning church, which is entirely reasonable if, in fact, they are meant to teach, to hand on what they themselves have received. Now, do you know the main concern of the Second Vatican Council? And this is according to the most authoritative sources. This is a sorting according to Paul VI, who closed the council, and John XXIII, who opened it. Right At the final meeting of the Second Vatican Council, Pope Paul VI specifically identified the main goal of Vatican II by quoting the words of Pope John XXIII when he called the council. Quote, The greatest concern of the ecumenical council is this, that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine 
be guarded and taught more effectively. Now, years later, Pope John Paul II, who participated at the council as a bishop, when he published the Catechism of the Catholic Church, he confirmed that guarding and effectively teaching the deposit of faith was indeed the principal task, his words, of Vatican II. You know, it's been the principal task of every pope and bishop since Peter and the apostles. It's called the Great Commission. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the world. Funny how none of that has even entered into the discussion of the synod on synodality. You know, and it seems to me that the problem with this with this process and really all of the failed pastoral initiatives of the last 50 years may stem from the fact that the majority of bishops today are not experienced pastors of souls. Okay, what I'm about to say is not nice, but I it's my New Year's resolution to not be nice. I will try not to be unkind or necessarily cruel. Okay, I don't go around digging in people's garbage looking for things to accuse them of. The, these, you know, the bishops and, and uh, Francis, the Vatican, they they've, are the ones promoting this, okay? And simply, if you look at the, the, the situation today, diocesan bishops are generally chosen from among auxiliary bishops who are generally chosen from among priests who work in the chancery. So you have a priest that goes from ordination to administration and then to the episcopate. In other words, you're talking about career bureaucrats. And when a bureaucrat is faced with a problem, his response is to form a committee and have meetings that form other committees and have more meetings. See, my dear old dad, God rest his soul, used to say that a, a committee is a group of people who take a good idea down a dark alley and strangle it to death. You know, and I offer this uh, this synod as, as exhibit A. Okay? Now, uh, um, really... What, what comes after the meetings and the committees and the, the more committees and the more meetings is another level of bureaucracy, which I suspect is what we'll wind up with. We'll get a new Vatican commission on whatever. And that's how you wind up with synods on synodality and decades of meaningless symbolic gestures that people can't even remember as the pews continue to empty. Except, of course, for those few communities that have embraced the traditional Latin mass. And that is what I wanted to talk about next, the so-called liturgy wars. And, and what I fear is a, a growing problem in this debate, and it's being exhibited on both sides. Um, the issue is an obvious logical fallacy that, that's really unworthy of a serious Catholic of any stripe because it's a kind of Puritanism. And Puritanism never ends well because it's a heresy. Now, I've gone over the problem from the, you know, the, the liberal modernist side, uh, most recently and exhaustively regarding Traditionis Custodes, which is kind of an all-out attack on the traditional Latin Mass and the Catholics who embrace it, frankly. Uh, but the primary problem of Traditionis Custodes is that it's based on false premises. You know, I, I recently saw an article purporting to reveal over 30 false premises in the document. I don't know that I agree with with all of those points, but it hardly matters because of the false premises at its core. Namely, number one, Vatican II called for the no, uh, new order of the Mass, which it didn't. Uh, that, secondly, Benedict XVI promulgated Samarum Pontificum, 
uh, only for priests and faithful of the SSPX and not to encourage the traditional Latin Mass among the Catholic population at large, which is refuted by the document itself. And three, that Benedict XVI gave a wider permission to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass. He didn't. Samorum Pontificum is not a permission to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass. It was an admission that every Roman Catholic priest has the right to celebrate the Old Mass without seeking anyone's permission, and that pastors have the right to schedule the public celebration of the traditional Latin Mass in their parish churches without the permission of the Pope or even their local bishop. Because for Roman Catholic priests, celebrating the traditional Latin Mass is a right not a privilege. And the same goes for the faithful who desire to assist at it. And again, this much is clear from, from Benedict XVI's document itself, as well as the letter to the bishops that, uh, that accompanied it. It's nonsense to claim that Benedict XVI gave a simple permission for ex-SSPX priests to say the traditional mass for their own congregants, because that's what John Paul II did with Ecclesia Dei. He issued an indult, that is to say, a permission for the traditional Latin mass. Now, if such permission was all that Benedict XVI was granting, there would have been really no need for Samorum Pontificum because it would have been, you know, uh, essentially identical with the previous policy. But that's not what he did, not at all. Pope Benedict made it abundantly clear that there wasn't any need for an indult because the traditional Latin Mass was never abrogated and, in fact, cannot be abrogated. In his own words, what was once sacred remains sacred and cannot be forbidden. forbidden or even considered harmful. Now, Traditionis Custodis makes precisely the opposite claim, and that is a contradiction. And we know that a contradiction is a nonsense. Either one of them is right, or, and one of them is wrong, or both of them is wrong, but they can't both be nice. Okay? It's a nonsense, or to use a less nice word, a lie. Now, when the author of Traditionis Custodis accuses all Catholics who prefer the extraordinary form of the Mass of rejecting Vatican II or rejecting the validity of the Novus Ordo and or rejecting the papacy, he's setting up a straw man. He's having an argument with a false position that he created himself. I mean, to carry over the, the Star Wars metaphor, these are not the trads you're looking for. Because he's, you know, these, these, these straw men trads who, who hate everything in the church are not representative of the majority of people that, that, uh, attend the extraordinary form. But what about the other side? What about the tradie side? Well, unfortunately, an uncomfortable amount of traditionalist commentators are constructing a straw man of their own. You know, while the modernists are saying Benedict XVI was wrong to allow the traditional Latin mass, quote unquote, allow, you've got trads who are saying that he was wrong to continue allowing the Novus Ordo. And what both sides are increasingly guilty of is what's called the zero-sum fallacy. Now, it's a term that comes from gaming, and, and a zero-sum game is a game with no net benefit. In other words, there's a winner and there's a loser, but there's no, there's no net benefit. There's no win-win scenario, right? And that's all well and good if you're talking about chess or checkers, but not about real-world debates. Benedict XVI illustrated this in his letter to the bishops that accompanied Samorum Pontificum, when he predicted the mutual enrichment that could be expected in those communities where both the extraordinary and ordinary form of the Mass were celebrated side by side. But the author of Traditionis Custodis denies this benefit. No, 
there must only be one. It must only be the Novus Ordo. And then you've got the Tradis reacting, no, it must only be the traditional Latin mass. And by the way, when I say the author of Traditionis Custodes, is, you know, uh, typically popes don't write, uh, don't compose their, their own uh, uh, documents. Some do. But uh, it, it has become increasingly uh, um, obvious to a lot of commentators that uh, the current prefect for the Congregation of Divine Worship, Cardinal Roach, was actually the, the author of this uh, Traditionis Custodes. But regardless... For him, for the author of this document, the traditional Latin mass is only a cause of dissension and disunity, and so it must be eliminated. And that's what comes of the hermeneutic of rupture. Vatican II changed everything. As Benedict lamented, they treat this merely, and that's merely, that's his word, this merely pastoral council as some kind of super dogma and a new start from zero. That is the hermeneutic of rupture, and it is manifestly evident in Traditionis Custodes. Now, as a corrective to this false method of interpreting Vatican II and this zero-sum fallacy, Benedict offered the hermeneutic of continuity, that is, to interpret Vatican II for what it is, you know, one council in, in the ongoing tradition of the Church. In other words, you interpret Vatican II in light of the 2,000-year tradition that preceded it, you do not reinterpret the tradition of the Church according to Vatican II. Now, I wrote as much in my book, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, which I completed substantially in 2015, although it wasn't uh, published for a couple of years. But imagine my surprise to discover that the very trad Catholics, some of whom have only become trad Catholics since after I wrote my book, how they're throwing Benedict XVI and the Hermitage community under the bus. Talk about that when we come back. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. So the hermeneutic of continuity, as uh, uh, proposed by Benedict XVI, uh, over and against uh, you know the idea that uh, Vatican II was a new start from zero and some kind of super dogma, that he says, no, Vatican II was just one more council in a long line of councils, and you have to interpret it in uh, light of the 2,000 years of tradition that preceded it, uh, rather than reinterpreting the tradition of the Church in light of Vatican II. Now, I know that there are, you know, obviously you've had the hermeneutic of rupture people who take the exact opposite idea that no, no, Vatican II changed everything. Now, imagine my surprise, though, when we have these so-called traditional Catholics that are throwing Benedict XVI and the hermeneutic of continuity right under the bus. Uh, I think it was last week, Miss Hillary White posted an article wherein she makes the claim that the hermeneutic of continuity, which she calls the biggest lie of the last 50 years— she says, it's done. Quoting, the conservatives insisted that the old religion could peacefully continue to function as a kind of supplicant, crouching in fear in its designated corner, like Cinderella living as a despised and abused serf in her own father's house, unquote. Okay, this is rather obviously and purposefully a misrepresentation of the hermeneutic of continuity. On top of that, she seems to be conflating the, the hermeneutic of continuity with the peaceful coexistence of the two forms of the Roman rite. And now what she and others are claiming is that the hermeneutic of continuity is just a label. See, it's really just a matter of accepting uh, that Vatican II and all the changes that happened since are really in line with Catholic tradition after all, just by virtue of the fact that they happened. 
you know, and perhaps there are some, you know, liberal slash modernists that are making that claim. I wouldn't put it past them. But the idea that the hermeneutic of continuity is just a way to give cover to those cowardly conservatives who are traditional in name only is a patently false claim. Because if that was the case, there wouldn't have been any need for Benedict XVI to make a distinction between the hermeneutic of continuity and, and, and the hermeneutic of rupture. I mean, if they were the same thing, you know, it, it, if it's not a matter of differing interpretations, then why use the term hermeneutic to begin with? Right? We know that a hermeneutic is an interpretational key. And Benedict is saying one hermeneutic is false and one is correct. Just as Traditionis Custodes is saying, you know, oh, oh, Samorum Pontificum is, is virtually identical to the Ecclesia Dei Indult. Why then did Benedict XVI promulgate Samorum, uh, Samorum Pontificum at all? Obviously, both sides are wrong. They're setting up straw men. They're, they're, they're indulging this fallacy. And for the umpteenth time, let me say, I am a traditional Catholic. I'm not a traditionalist. I'm a traditional Catholic, not because I regularly assist at the traditional Latin Mass, which I do. I'm a traditional Catholic because I can say the act of faith and really mean it. That's what a traditional Catholic is, whatever liturgical rite he attends. And let's face it, these, these dishonest straw man arguments and zero-sum fallacies are not going to accomplish anything except driving traffic on the Internet. And I think people of goodwill can agree that there is much in the church that needs fixing. But eradicating the traditional Latin mass is certainly not the answer. And neither is this fantasy of proclaiming Vatican II a do-over and turning the clock back to 1958. Furthermore, addressing the zero-sum fallacy, I believe, or rather I know, that Benedict XVI was right about the mutual enrichment of the two forms of the Roman rite which he uh, labeled the extraordinary form for the traditional mass and the ordinary form for the new mass. And this is not based on fallacious arguments or fabricated surveys, but my own personal experience of visiting parishes all over this country, as well as parishes and cities all around Canada and Australia. Those parishes that are home to both forms of the Roman rite generally have a greater lay involvement overall and a, a far more sober uh, and less abusive celebration of the ordinary form. And as for the benefit to the extraordinary form, more people have experienced and fallen in love with this venerable rite than ever would have if it had only had you know, been available in specially constructed parishes like those of the uh, Fraternity of St. Peter or the Institute of Christ the King, and much less if one could only uh, assist at the traditional Latin Mass in a community that's outside of the diocesan structure. Right before Samorum Pontificum, there were less than 200 licit traditional masses in the United States. Today, there's more than three times that many, and they're celebrated. The traditional mass is celebrated in every diocese in the country, including Washington D.C. And that could not have happened if it weren't for Samorum Pontificum. A lot of these uh, uh, these naysaying so-called traditional Catholics only became traditional Catholics because of it. Right. Also, at a typical extraordinary form mass at a parish church, you've got a congregation that follows. They are actively participating. They're following the prayers of the priest in their own personal hand missiles or that ubiquitous red Una Voce missalette, uh, and they're making the responses in Latin. 
Some places that are even doing the readings and the propers uh, in the vernacular per Benedict's suggestions, Samorum Pontificum. You know, and that's actually in line with Vatican II. The one thing I will say that the Novus Ordo drilled into the heads of Catholics was active participation. And I dare say that the participation of the congregation at the extraordinary form is far more in line with what was envisioned in the Vatican II Constitution on the liturgy than Paul VI's Novus Ordo, which was not called for by Vatican II at all. Now, perhaps our, and this may be a bitter thing to say, but maybe our best hope is that the Puritans on both sides of the liturgy wars will succeed in eating each other sooner rather than later so that the rest of us can get on with the serious business of cultivating virtue and growing in holiness, fulfilling the, the universal call to holiness. You know, if we want to talk about, about uh, uh, you know, achieving uh, these, this, you know, growing closer and so forth, let's, let's grow closer to Christ. Back when um, Pope Benedict was still Father Ratzinger, back in 1969, he made a prediction. And you hear it all the time, but you don't hear it in its context very often. And I, this is kind of long, but I want to I just read it to you. This is what Benedict said in 1969. He said, the future of the church can and will issue from those whose roots are deep and who live from the pure fullness of their faith. It will not issue from those who accommodate themselves merely to this passing moment or from those who merely criticize others and assume that they themselves are infallible measuring rods. This is, he's, in 1969, he put his finger exactly on the situation in the church right now. Nor, he says, will it issue from those who take the easier road, who sidestep the passion of the faith, declaring false and obsolete and tyrannous and legalistic all that makes demands upon men that hurts them and compels them to sacrifice themselves. To put this more positively, he said, the future of the church, once again, as always, will be reshaped by saints, by those whose minds probe deeper than the slogans of the day, who see more than others see, because their lives embrace a wider reality. Unselfishness, which makes men free, is attained only through the patience of small daily acts of self-denial. By this daily passion, which alone reveals to a man in how many ways he is enslaved by his own ego, by this daily passion and by it alone, a man's eyes are slowly opened. He sees only to the extent that he has lived and suffered. <clears throat> Pardon me. He says, if today we are scarcely able any longer to become aware of God, it is because we find it so easy to evade ourselves, to flee from the depths of our being by means of the narcotic of some pleasure or other. Thus, our own interior depths remain closed to us. <clears throat> I apologize. If it is true, he says, that a man can only see with his heart, then how blind we are. Pardon me, I got a little dry in my throat here. <clears throat> but he sums it up this way. And this is the quote that you may be familiar with. He says, we will soon have reduced priests to the role of social workers and the message of faith reduced to political views. <clears throat> Everything will seem lost. I apologize. <clears throat> Everything will seem lost, he says, but at the right moment, 
right in the most dramatic stage of the crisis, the church will be reborn. I can say that this is very much in line with the prophecies of the Blessed Virgin Mary, both Fatima and Our Lady of Good Success. He says of the church, she will be smaller, poorer, almost catacombal, but even more holy. For it will no longer be the church of those who seek to please the world, but the church of the faithful to God and his eternal law. Rebirth will be the work of a small remains, or I think a better translation would be remnant, seemingly insignificant yet indomitable, passed through a purification process, because that's how God works. Against evil, a small flock resists. <coughs> Those are the words. <coughs> oh, pardon me, I apologize. Those are the words of Cardinal Ratzinger or Father Ratzinger from 1969. And I think that the, the big part of the problem that that he foresaw all the way back, you know, uh, the year before that the Novus Ordo became mandatory, by the way. The problem comes from the fact that even then and, and even still today, <coughs> pardon me, good Catholics let the liberal hermeneutic of continuity control the narrative about the council. You know, he said there's there's a false version of the council that was promoted by the media and so forth. And then there's the real council of the fathers, which has not been, you know, promoted. So next week, we're going to start talking about how traditional Catholics, okay, and if you are a Catholic who is serious about his faith, that means you, okay? No-nonsense Catholics. We're going to look at what those documents really say and how we can cure many of the ills of the Novus Ordo simply by following the actual rules which are routinely ignored. I think this is the probably the important topic for the next 50 years is for the traditional Catholics to, to take over or to regain control of the narrative of what Vatican II really said and even the post-conciliar documents, what they really say and get to the business of being Catholic and being holy. Also, since it's the start of another year, we're going to look at Pope jo St. John Paul II's pastoral plan for the third millennium, his seven-step plan for uh, achieving holiness right now, today. All right, so all of that and more next week. And I just want to say at this point, thank you so much for being with us this time around. I apologize for uh, <clears throat> getting that dry spot in my throat that wouldn't seem to go away right during the... Uh, dramatic reading of uh, Cardinal Ratzinger's or Father Ratzinger's uh, prophecy. But I hope you'll join us again next week for more and uh, continue to support Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We really appreciate it. Okay, so till next time, may God richly bless you and your family.